Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, we will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care program, What's New in the Treatment of Hodgkin's Lymphoma? And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And really because of that collaboration, we have over 251 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban, and suburban areas. And we also have a number of international participants from Canada, Croatia, Germany, Iraq, Baos, South Africa, the UK, and Venezuela. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And uh, today's program is supported by Seattle Genetics, and we really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, before we actually start the formal program, um, we would like to ask all of you um, to respond to two questions um, just up front, just to see what your knowledge is before we come into the program. It's really important for us to have a sense of. So the first question you're going to be asked is, and you'll be able to see it on your screen, um, I know all the new treatment approaches for Hodgkin lymphoma, and the responses are either yes or no. And the second question is, I know exactly how to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine, Appointments. And again, the response is either yes or no. Well, thank you um, for that. That's very um, helpful for us. And now we're going to move on to the call and our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. David Strauss. And Dr. Strauss is attending physician, lymphoma service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, professor of clinical medicine, Wall Cornell Medical College. And uh, Dr. Strauss will be addressing an overview of Hodgkin's lymphoma in the context of COVID-19, diagnosing, staging, and grading, and novel treatment approaches. It's really my great pleasure now to over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Strauss. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I will try to go through my rather challenging assignments in the allotted time. Uh, Hodgkin lymphoma is not a super common malignancy, but it's not super rare either. It is estimated there will be about uh, 8,500 new cases in North America. Uh, in, or rather in the United States in 2020. This has not increased a lot. Uh, Hodgkin lymphoma is most common in people between ages 20 to 40. Maybe the median age would be 30. And there's another group of patients that are somewhat different clinically and biologically over the age of 55. Um, in contrast to the... 7 to 8,500, 7,000 to 8,500 cases of Hodgkin lymphoma. There are roughly maybe 80,000 new cases of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, which is a big lumped group of patients with many, with nearly 100 different types. Um, Hodgkin lymphoma is, like lymphomas, are diagnosed by biopsy. Usually the classic would be an excisional lymph node biopsy, but sometimes corneal biopsies are adequate. Um, there are two big categories of Hodgkin lymphoma. 95% are what we call classical Hodgkin lymphoma, and there are a number of variants of this. Nodular sclerosis, miscellularity, T-cell rich, and lymphocyte depletion. Uh, there, classical Hodgkin lymphoma is, toward, is treated the same. And then about 5% of cases are a disease called nodular lymphocyte predominant Hodgkin lymphoma, 
which is a very slowly growing disease and is biologically um, possibly more akin to non-Hodgkin, B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas. We use uh, the same staging that was uh, derived with some modifications, the Ann Arbor staging, uh, Ann Arbor uh, staging system that was devised uh, nearly 50 years ago. Uh, this staging divides the body in half by the diaphragm, which is the muscle that divides the chest cavity from the abdominal cavity. So we refer to upper body disease above the diaphragm, lower body disease below the diaphragm. Uh, there are four stages. Stage one would be disease in just one lymph node area. Stage two would be in two or more lymph node areas, either above the diaphragm or below the diaphragm, but not both. Spleen is considered to be a lymph node in the staging, although it's not exactly a lymph node. Uh, stage three would be disease in lymph nodes and spleen above and below the diaphragm, and stage four would be uh, disease in lymph nodes plus what we call an extranodal or non-lymph node site, which in the case of Hodgkin lymphoma is lung, liver, and uh, bone. Um, so we uh, use uh, imaging staging with CT scans, which is a kind of computer-based uh, uh, x-ray, which makes cross-sectional uh, x-ray pictures like slices of a salami through your body, and that's complemented by a nuclear medicine scan called the PET scan. Um, so we have been curing uh, over 70%, 70 percent or more of patients for decades, um, and the challenge has been to do this at less cost, particularly long-term effects of some of the treatments we've used in the past. Various uh, places in the world use different kinds of uh, ways of selecting treatment for patients. Um, and in North America, we've been really making it simple. We have kind of three categories of patients that we consider different treatments in. One is stage one and two with small lymph nodes, not what we call bulky lymph nodes. Uh, then there are stage one and two with bulky sites, and usually the most common one is very large masses in the center of the chest called the mediastinum. Uh, and uh, then stage three and four, which is disease in lymph nodes plus sites that are not lymph nodes. So the tendency in uh, North America, certainly, through the years has been to really emphasize uh, chemotherapy. Uh, we did uh, emphasize radiation therapy in the past, but this is less and less. And in my own opinion, I think that chemotherapy is really the frontline treatment. Radiation therapy remains a useful tool in some patients, but for most newly diagnosed patients, uh, at least in my practice, I'm not really treating very much with radiation therapy. So for the three categories, stage one and two, Without bulk, we treat with uh, short courses of chemotherapy. One uh, uh, approach that we developed uh, in North America is using four cycles of our current standard treatment, which is called ABVD, doxorubicin, bleomycin, vinblastin, and decarbazine, and we monitor things with PET scans during treatment and at the end of treatments. Some people add radiation therapy. This can reduce the relapse rate by 5 to 10 percent, although the patients who do relapse can be successfully treated with other treatments, not even necessarily intensive treatments. Uh, stage uh, 1 and 2 uh, bulky with the big masses in the mediastinum have been treated for years with chemotherapy and radiation therapy because either one alone had excessive relapses, but it's been shown that the PET scan, the metabolic scan, the nuclear medicine scan, at the end of treatment, if that's negative, it's very predictive of an excellent outcome. So it doesn't, recent data has really shown that it's not really necessary to radiate patients at the end of uh, chemotherapy if their PET scan is negative, although 
I will admit that that is still uh, somewhat controversial. In stage 3 and 4 disease, we've been treating uh, for the last really 40, 50 years with chemotherapy alone. The standard in the U.S. is ABVD, which I mentioned, uh, and more recently, the uh, use of a new, very powerful chemotherapy agent given by a different uh, delivery system, which is called antibody drug conjugate, Ecedris, or Mentuximabidodin, plus three of the chemotherapy drugs in the ABD regimen, a ABVD regimen, ABD, dropping bleomycin, the most toxic regimen, uh, drug in that regimen, has also been shown to have excellent results in stage three and four with relapses uh, somewhat less than those with ABVD, so that's another treatment that's used. Um, I will say um, COVID-19 has really um, affected clinical practice. Uh, we have found in lymphoma that you can really get most of the things you need to do by virtual uh, things, uh, physical examination, we can use PET scans and CAT scans to really measure most things, and we can really deliver most of our care by telemedicine. Um, we, we were very concerned about uh, immunosuppression being a risk factor for severe COVID uh, infection. Uh, but we've actually found that we've been able successfully to treat largely even through virtual medicine and not actually having to have patients uh, see us directly in person. Um, uh, and we, uh, so there are some lymphomas where treatment is, is advisable and, and, and really uh, preferable, but not not essential to start, you know, immediately. And, and the early, we, we had, we were the biggest center in early in the infection. And so there were patients with some kinds of lymphoma where we delayed treatment because of this concern. Hodgkin lymphoma, aggressive non-Hodgkin lymphomas, we felt always that they had to be treated because they really, the outcome would really matter. And we've done that. And I will say our experience is that we have done it successfully, largely using a lot of uh, virtual uh, medicine with telemedicine. And I think Dr. Haberman and Rosenthal will go into that in more detail. So I think I'm pretty much on time, and I guess uh, I thank you for your attention and look forward to your questions. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Strauss, outstanding uh, presentation and, and very informative to everybody um, in terms of um, the uh, challenges in terms of the world that we're living in right now and also um, the importance of uh, how new treatments are available. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Thomas Haberman. Dr. Haberman is Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine, and Dr. Haberman will be addressing clinical trial updates, managing treatment side effects in the context of COVID-19, and your comfort level with adherence and follow-up care. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Haberman. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's an honor to be with you, Dr. David Strauss and Dr. Ellison Rosenthal. With regard to clinical trials, the availability and opportunities depend upon the number of factors as a patient, which country you live in, the type of practice that you're being managed in, the distance from centers with protocols open, and most importantly in this disease, how many previous treatments and what type of previous treatments. The trials that are ongoing or of significant interest include the Keynote 204 trial, which was a randomized study of pembrolizumab and rentuximab that dotin in relapse patients. And that trial has recently come out reporting an improvement in the pembrolizumab arm in progression-free survival, but there was more pneumonia. As Dr. Strauss alluded to, the ABD rentuximab and dotin regimen is under study, and there's a trial of nivolumab plus ABVD versus that regimen. Uh, ongoing in the United States, uh, trial S1826. After the unbelievable results with nivolumab and pembrolizumab, the PD-1 and PDL one inhibitors, 
There are trials evaluating a number of combination strategies. Uh, these are not approved by regulatory bodies internationally at this point in time. Nivolumab is being added to ruxolotinib. Nivolumab is being added to ice chemotherapy. It's being added to cytobine and bendamustine. It's also being used in a consolidation arm after VDAVD and being evaluated post-auto stem cell transplant consolidation. Pembrolizumab is being studied with gemcitabine, nivalabine, and liposomal doxorubicin. It's also being evaluated with radiation therapy. Rituximab is opens, being evaluated with ibrutinib, uh, and it's being evaluated with ice, and then with nivalumab and ipilimumab. We also have a trial at our own institution using high-dose vitamin C with salvage regimens. Very novel approaches that are just coming on board and being uh, under evaluation included, include the following. The whole CAR T-cell story has unfolded very remarkably in refractory uh, aggressive B-cell lymphomas and most recently in mantis-cell lymphoma. And there are now trials looking at CD30 CAR T-cells. One trial has initially been reported an overall response rate of 79%, which is quite interesting and encouraging. A new antibody approach is under evaluation, a CD25 antibody drug conjugate, chemidenumab, and this also has reported high response rates in over 80%, a temporary closure of the trial because of uh, cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome uh, has been under evaluation and the trial is now reopened in the United States. There's also an approach of using bispecific antibodies, CD30 or CD16, and the bispecific antibody approaches are becoming very important in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Lastly, there are different Epstein-Barr-directed cytotoxic T-cell approaches. One study reported responses in two patients out of seven that were long-term beyond four years. And so there's a lot going on in this disease in patients who relapse after our standard approaches of chemotherapy and peripheral blood stem cell transplant is relapse. What about managing the side effects? And I think we have to really put this into the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. There are very similar presentations to chemotherapy and COVID-19 presentations, including fever, cough, shortness of breath, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, altered sense of taste and smell. These are the things that the COVID-19 patients present with, but doesn't this really sound like chemotherapy side effects when you read about it or for those of you who have gone through treatment? So it's very imperative that you keep very close contact with your healthcare team, and if your temperature is over 100.5 degrees Fahrenheit, then you really need to contact your team. With regard to toxicities in general, it really depends upon whether or not you're treated with chemotherapy, immunotherapy, radiation therapy, transplantation, CAR T-cell therapy, and then there are CAM approaches also or complementary and alternative medicine approaches. The most common side effects are lowered blood counts, fatigue, gastrointestinal symptoms, skin changes, and peripheral neuropathy. How do you manage these blood counts, intermittent blood count checks uh, while on chemotherapy in between cycles, bleeding, using a soft toothbrush, avoiding tampons, avoid enemas or suppositories or rectal thermometers. Infections, again, if you don't feel well, check your temperature, be in contact with your healthcare team. Neutropenia is very common with our standard chemotherapy approaches and we're all getting used to the idea and we're coming to understand better nationally and internationally what good hand washing really means, what alcohol-based hand approaches are, the need to wash fruits and vegetables, and when you're new to peeing, it's, it's important to eat uncooked meat or undercooked meat or raw fish, and colony stimulating factors in certain situations can be helpful. 
Nausea and vomiting medications have improved dramatically since Dr. Strauss and I started uh, in our careers back in the 80s, and we're doing much better at that. 10 to 15 percent of patients need to move on to more advanced approaches and regimens, but they can be very effective. With regard to fatigue, rest and exercise, it's okay to take a nap during the day. Specific drugs, monoclonal antibodies, Benadryl, Tylenol, and steroids can be very helpful. Peripheral neuropathy is in general observed, but if it's significant and impairing uh, things, then gabapentin and other drugs are available. Well, what about your comfort level and adherence to uh, follow-up care? The whole approach to life nationally and internationally has been social distancing. So keeping six feet apart, wearing your mask, staying at home, checking your temperature one to two times a day. So almost behaving like we have the virus. So the mantra has become mask and monitor for illness. As Dr. Strauss alluded to and in conclusion, we are here to keep you safe and think long term about you. In Hodgkin disease, upfront is a potentially curable disease. In patients who have relapsed, there is extraordinary hope that, again, was not present back in the 80s, but we now have peripheral blood stem cell transplant. We now have many drugs, the PD-1, PDL one inhibitors that are approved by regulatory bodies worldwide. We have the Ventuximab, the Zotin, and then we have all kinds of new trials evolving nationally and internationally. In my career, which started in 1982 in this field, I never had to have the discussions and lay out the plans that I had before about delaying treatment and doing less testing than we might normally do and doing less office visits. But in the end, patients with potentially curable disease and very treatable disease, such as Hodgkin lymphoma, should be treated with the best intent and the best possible therapeutic interventions in the context even of our current situation of COVID-19. I'm full of significant hope for patients with lymphoma and how they are managed at this point in time, and there has to be and must continue to be hope. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Hagerman. Uh, excellent presentation, really wonderful, and also just very inspiring in the concept of hope, which you want to probably talk about perhaps a bit more during the Q&A as well. So thank you so much for that. Um, really um, wonderful presentation. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Allison Rosenthal, and Dr. Rosenthal is a hematology um, consultant at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. And as Dr. Al Dr. Rosenthal will be addressing the benefits of communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life, concerns, and the context of COVID-19, the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments to decrease your exposure to COVID-19, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments. It will now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rosenthal. Thank you very much, Dr. Messer, and thank you to Dr. Strauss and Dr. Haberman for your wonderful overviews in your sections. It's easy for me to follow up with these concepts. So um, first and foremost, even outside of the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm a huge advocate for communicating as often as may be with your healthcare team, uh, particularly about quality of life concerns. And so in this context, I think it's probably important to recognize who might be players on your healthcare team. Um, and so that would include people such as your physician, if you see a PA or, an, or a nurse practitioner also, potentially a social worker and or a psychologist, the nurses supporting you both in the chemotherapy treatments and in the outpatient setting, um, as well as if you have a transplant team. Um, I know from taking care of a lot of my patients through this pandemic so far that there has been a tremendous amount of anxiety, fear, and uncertainty that has come up in this, situ in this situation because a lot of this was not something we were overly prepared for or had experience with in the past. And so I want to emphasize that you should utilize your healthcare team to try and allay those fears and concerns. Um, so one of the things, you know, that has come up is the management of chemotherapy side effects if you're going through active treatment in the setting of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
certainly we are a resource to you, as is the rest of your team, if you feel like you're having significant side effects, which could, which could mean additional video visits if they need to be evaluated or change, um, change medications for supportive care. Um, a lot of patients have been experiencing anxiety related to potential exposure to COVID-19, as well as potentially uh, depression related to the isolation that has been necessary for many of our at-risk patients. And so the healthcare team, again, is a resource for you as far as those feelings go, and I want to normalize the fact that many people are feeling that way. Um, and so while your healthcare team may not be able to cater to all of um, the concerns that you have directly, they certainly can connect you with other resources in that regard. One thing that has come up uh, a lot, and I'm not surprised, is that those patients that are in survivorship at this point, so maybe got treated in the past and are still following up regularly with your healthcare team, is a feeling of things being potentially out of control again or feeling like things are back to the way they were because you're stuck at home again like you were potentially during treatment. Again, something that has come up often and is not surprising and is somewhat normal, but we have ways to support you through that as well. Without addressing that with your healthcare team, we don't know what kind of struggles people are having at home. Um, other things that have come up include concerns about intimacy, sexuality, relationships, stress. You're probably spending more time potentially with your family and significant others and children uh, than you may have outside of a pandemic. People are working from home. If you're on treatment, you're home and out of work anyways potentially. And so please bring these things up with your healthcare team as we can help work through that as well. Um, hopefully no one on this call has had to face a substantial delay in diagnosis or deferral of treatment, though I know that has come up occasionally. Um, as Dr. Hopperman and Dr. Strauss emphasized, our Hodgkin lymphoma patients have really gone through treatment as planned as if a pandemic wasn't happening as far as the treatment options and hoping that we get you through a course of therapy without having to deal with the lymphoma again. Another thing that I think has been really important to recognize is the financial impact of all of this on many people. So. Um, unfortunately, many people have lost their jobs um, for a variety of reasons through this pandemic, which also may mean that your insurance may have lapsed or that there are people now paying for COBRA, um, which I know is a substantial out-of-pocket expense. So please address those concerns with your healthcare team if they're happening as well so that we can minimize any lapses in your treatment and ongoing care. Um, some of my patients have expressed some frustration that others aren't taking this pandemic as seriously and being an at-risk population, that's obviously of concern. Again, we are here to listen and help allay any of those concerns best we can, as well as to emphasize that there are many resources in the mental health arena uh, to help through anybody who may be feeling particularly vulnerable in this situation. Um, this leads me to the second topic, I guess, in the sense that many of you probably have been experiencing follow-up and visits in the form of telehealth or telemedicine. Um, we really are doing our best to assess the risks and benefits of seeing you guys in person versus video or phone visits. Um, and know that if you are being asked to be seen in person, that there are procedures and policies that have been put in place to keep you as safe as possible. And we really are trying to minimize the number of people coming in unnecessarily for in-person visits. So if you do have to come in for a visit, hopefully you feel safe and secure that the institution you're being seen at has done everything they can to keep you in a safe place. This has really helped, I think, a ton, particularly for our patients who are from out of state or travel quite a distance to see us, which has not really been a problematic thing in the past because people could hop on a plane or drive several hours to be seen, but this has really helped stay connected with people who are more in remote areas and may have additional risk factors other than just having Hodgkin lymphoma that would limit their ability to travel in the midst of the pandemic. So the things that we can do through um, telehealth and telemedicine you know, if people are neutropenic, obviously exposure to additional people out of their immediate family or care team can be minimized that way. I personally have been seeing patients who are requiring infusions in person, um, which I think is reasonable. However, I know there are some places where you may be able to be seen remotely and then treated in person, and that's up to your care team and their comfort level. Some patients who are in long-term follow-up or just being reassessed for a non-infusion or non-treatment day visit may have video visits in which we certainly can go over scan results, PET scans, CAT scans. Those can be shared through, you know, video screen to screen so they can re be reviewed that way as well. Um, please do feel comfortable insisting to be seen in person. If you have particular symptoms or concerns and are in long-term follow-up, we're still here to see people as needed in person. 
And I think one of the biggest advantages to having telemedicine visits is that many centers have been restricting visitors. I know we are now allowing some, but it is still on a case-by-case -case basis the number of people and how long people can be present and where. And so having telemedicine visits really enables your family and loved ones to still be part of your care team and hear what your medical team has to say because I know a lot of it can be overwhelming sometimes and it's helpful to have a second set of ears or so so you know that everything has been communicated um, accurately. And then the last thing I'll cover just in another minute or two here is there are some things I would recommend doing to prepare if you do know you're going to have a telemedicine or telehealth visit. So first and foremost, I want everyone to feel comfortable that you are still receiving expert care with the added benefit of potential safety measures in place. And so please don't feel like a telehealth visit limits us in any way as far as um, the evaluations and recommendations we can make for you. Um, please practice connecting early so you know the process of connection. So in some places you may have to call in, in some places they may reach out to you. There's often a third party that will connect people uh, directly and make sure that you have the appropriate device to connect if you are planning on a video visit rather than a phone visit. It would be helpful if you take time to gather your thoughts and prepare questions in advance as well as potentially make a list of your concerns. This is different than the usual and it can also be overwhelming and a little bit frantic feeling. So if you have that put together in advance, you can make the most of your time during your telemedicine visit. And then think about if you want to have anybody there with you, and will that person take notes? If you plan to have somebody else there, particularly if it's an important visit where you're talking about treatment options, restaging scans, response assessments, it's helpful to have someone there not only to be kind of a person to lean on, but also to make sure that you hear everything you need to hear. If you're on multiple medications, it would also be helpful to us to have a medication list handy. So we often will have those as part of our medical record, but if anything has changed, it would be nice to be able to have that information as part of the visit as well. And then what I've recommended to the majority of my patients is if you have an option between a phone visit and a video visit, I've been asking people to go forward with video visits as able. Now, if you don't have a way to connect that way, phone is probably better than nothing. But the video visit, in my opinion, gives you a chance to connect face-to-face so from a distance still with your provider, and it feels a little bit more like a normal experience would be in the office. So with that, I think I'll thank you guys again for your time and listening, and I will transfer things back to Dr. Messner for the next portion. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Rosenthal. That was so informative and, and really very helpful to people in terms of preparing for the visit, the appointments, and having questions at hand and, and really deciding who they want to have with them. So these are all very important points, and I really want to thank you. I know there'll be questions about this. It's a very um, something that people um, have lots of questions about, so thank you so much. Um, and um, I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care before we uh, uh, take um, uh, questions. Um, so cancer care, I'm Carolyn Metzger, I'm Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. And cancer care is a national um, organization, um, we're a nonprofit organization, and our staff are primarily oncology social workers. And um, our services are quite uh, diverse and, um, and widespread, so I'm going to just briefly outline them for you. Um, also, for those of you who wish to call us, we can, a lot of people use our uh, helpline, helpline actually, at um, 800-813-4673, or for those of you who prefer to visit us on the website, both in the U.S. or internationally, it's www.cancercare.org. And all that information or any any resource we give you during this call, you'll be getting um after the call when you get your evaluations, you'll definitely get this information again. Um, so uh, we, uh, we have to have about college social workers. I basically uh, take any questions that come in on the phone. Anyone who calls on the phone, they will be immediately, their phone calls taken during business hours, and, um, Monday through Friday, and we'll basically the office support, so the office support services to people just to talk about concerns that one may have. Um, we also offer case management services, which are quite extensive, and we um, we don't just give you a place that you could contact to get help, but we actually take you there to some extent, um, go, you know, help you really connect with that other place and be sure that you are connected. So we don't just give you a list of places to call if we were recommending a resource. We're, we, we are sure that you connect to that resource as well and get the help that you need. 
Um, in addition to that, we do offer online support groups, and we do offer um, a chance for um, really to talk um, with, again, our oncology social workers about concerns or questions you may have and really try to uh, troubleshoot them with them. That's really very helpful. People like that a lot. Um, and um, we, of course, have programs like this, and we also have a number of publications and fact sheets that you can access um, online as well, and or we can um, mail them to you as well. So a lot of different resources, um, a little bit of everything for everybody, and it's a matter of what you need. That you can simply call us for all of them or one thing. We also do also do offer um, very importantly both practical and financial assistance, which is probably a very important aspect of our services. And many people, um, based on our just listening to our call today, many people have concerns about the financial and practical questions, which they also can bring up with their healthcare team. But also, it's where a resource that you can go to because most of the staff have spent their careers developing ways that you can get that type of help. It's really important for all of you. Now, before and that, that I just want to conclude that part of this, and now we are going to take um, just a two more questions for all of you. Um, uh, actually, Paul, uh, we're going to just do two more questions for all of you. And um, those questions, um, the first question is, and for those of you who are live streaming, you'll be able to see the question and respond to it. So as a result of this workshop, I am more aware of the new treatment approaches for Hodgkin's lymphoma. And you can either answer yes or no. And then there's a... Another question, last question. As a result of this workshop, I am better prepared to get the most out of telehealth telemedicine appointments with my doctor. Yes or no? And I very much want to thank you all for participating in this. This is very important and helpful uh, information so we can better plan our programs going forward. And now we have time for questions from our speakers, so um, our panel of experts. So I'm going to ask uh, Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to ask you to uh, uh, pose your questions. And, and Michelle will explain to you how to queue up for questions as well. That's important. Michelle? Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, Please press star, then one, and your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the sound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And we have a question from one of our um, online participants. Um, and I'm going to um, uh, give this question to, to start to... Um, to Tom. We're going to use our first names actually for this for the QA part. We decided that would be perfectly helpful to all of you. What is progressive or resistive Hodgkin's lymphoma? Tom, would you like to start with that one? Well, that's a good question. Patients with progressive disease uh, you can be defined either as in the initial treatment realm or in when you have relapsed and are getting retreated with another regimen. Uh, you, so it could occur on treatment where you would then have enlargement of lymph nodes or new lesions on scans. Uh, you can also be in follow-up, and so we know that there's a risk of relapse in this disease, that we don't cure everyone, and that then after initial treatment, the the uh, uh, patients can uh, uh, relapse. That is, again, evidence of new disease by either examined by notes or, or on scans or even lab tests that then move us to further evaluation. And I might defer also to David to respond to that for a moment. Yeah. Um Briefly, I think uh, because we cure north of 70% of all patients in all stages, uh, a, a relapse is something that occurs, you're in a remission, and then it comes back, which means that it's like an iceberg where, you know, the start part that's above the surface of the water is no longer visible, 
but this still is the iceberg, and eventually, uh, unlike an iceberg, it grows to be seen. And uh, so we have second-line treatments for that, uh, which can give the second chance for a cure. Refractory is really you're on a treatment, and either immediately after, shortly thereafter, or during treatment, your disease start, stops responding. And so uh, that that's a little different situation. That's a situation where... I think novel approaches, novel drugs, as Tom said, not approved by regulatory agencies like the FDA, are used in experimental protocols to try to uh, get a better response uh, as compared with the frontline or early treatment with chem emphasizing chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, and then um, I have a question um, about uh, for um, for Allison about um, the telehealth system. So, um, could you comment on uh, someone asked the question about having someone coming with them or be with them during the call? Would they be someone who lives in the same town or a long distance caregiver, someone who lives perhaps halfway around the country or somewhere else? If you could comment on your experience with that. Sure. So a lot of people um, live potentially with someone else uh, family-wise, and so those, that's an easy way to set it up is that someone else is there who lives in your same household. Obviously, with concern for social distancing and not wanting to gather in large groups, um, it may be that you have someone else who is the person who is come intermittently with you to your chemo visits, but maybe they don't live with you but are also social distancing. You could include someone like that, and if you have a – child, let's say I've done this with a patient where um, their son lives in another state, um, we have set it up so that they can be conferenced in for the video visit. Now, the ability to do that from place to place may vary, and it may be that they have to connect outside, you know, before they connect into our platform, um, but that may not be impossible to do. And least of all, if that cannot be done, um, and you are having a video visit, you could always have someone on speakerphone on your phone on the other end if they want to be a third person on the call but can't be with you in person. Those are the nice options. Thank you. And we have another question from one of our um, online participants um, and for Dr. Strauss. Um, I'm considering stem cell transplantations and a variety of other treatments uh, I'm considering, but I wondered about that. Under what circumstances would autologous be better than allogeneic treatment? Well, as I said in my previous comments, uh, we're talking about the optimal situation is second-line treatment. So you get one of the regimens I mentioned and, and your disease comes back. So the standard of care for 30 years, 25 years, has been uh, high-dose chemotherapy with the support of your own or autologous stem cells, sometimes called autologous stem cell transplantation. Uh, that is really not an organ transplant in the same sense of a kidney transplant or a heart transplant where the organ is the treatment. Autologous, where you get your own uh, uh, blood-producing cells back, they're saved and you get them back, after a high dose of chemotherapy is not really a transplant. It's really high-dose chemotherapy that otherwise could knock out the production of blood and to save some of those cells before you get that and give them back to reconstitute the production of blood. So this is really high-dose chemotherapy with the support of your own blood-forming cells. That's the standard of care, really, for fit patients in second-line treatment and is still the standard uh, treatment which can result in a substantial number of cures. Uh, allogeneic uh, transplant is, is technically similar in that you get blood-producing cells back, but it is really in concept completely different. It's really, it's really a transplant where you're getting 
cells that produce blood that are genetically different from you, from a sibling or from an uh, unrelated donor or from cord blood, and these cells recognize the cancer as foreign and produce a reaction against them. So it's an immune therapy where the transplant is really part of the treatment. That is really, um, it has many more risks and definitely has, has a place and there have been successes, but due to the risks, this is something that is, is really not done nearly as frequently as frontline uh, uh, autologous, so-called autologous stem cell transplantation, or as I prefer to really think about it, high-dose chemotherapy with the support of your own blood-forming cells. And so at the um, And another question um, uh, for Tom: um, What is the status of clinical trials um, yeah, for Hodgkin's um in the pandemic? Um, do they have a timeline to increase the numbers of people in the trials again? So I think it's fair to say, and this has played out in the cancer letter and other emails and so forth, that that the trials have been reopened at most centers across this country. I don't have a real good sense of other countries, and I know we have uh, Croatia, Germany, Canada. I, my understanding is in Germany they're back up and running. Uh, the pause was not as long as I would have anticipated when this initially started to happen, but cancer centers really uh, geared back up. I think in these trials, and I just uh, talked to someone today on the S1826 trial, Cool is picking back up. Uh, so my hope is, is that there was a bit of a slowdown, but uh, not as significant as, as I thought. In our own programs, our phase two programs and so forth, uh, we've been up and going and we're accruing at reasonable rates again. Uh, some of this gets impacted by patients being able to come a distance uh, uh, to, to some centers and we're impacted by that. And, uh, but I think are, are picking up significantly and I, I guess I guess also Juan David's comments about uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering and what's happening there. Well, we have really been uh, amazingly really uh, continuing pretty active opening of trials and clinical research throughout this, even, even during the early part where we were especially hard hit. There were some things that were paused in uh, for short periods of time, but I, I'm on the Institutional Review Board, which reviews all the human protocols, and I can tell you, and uh, you know, we have had you know, really full agendas of a lot of new studies. So we've been able to really uh, carry on with clinical research and uh, even now that cases are down, we're, we're really, uh, we're going as strongly as ever. That's very reassuring, I think, for people to hear. So thank you. That's very important to know. And do you want to comment just um, in general, uh, um, Allison, about just the role clinical trials play in, in really advancing the state of the art of, 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 uh, of treatment in general across the board, particularly for Hodgkin lymphoma, but for so many other cases as well? Do you want to comment on that? Sure. I'll add one thing to the previous question, if that's okay. Um, many of the clinical trials that we have open and that have remained open have also been very, uh, the, the sponsors have been very gracious about enabling telehealth visits as part of follow-up as appropriate. And so it may be that there's opportunity still even for people who um, would typically have to travel frequently for follow-ups to, to still be participating in, in clinical trials at this time. Um, as far as the, the benefits and the necessity of doing clinical trials in, in all places in oncology work, research, but in Hodgkin specifically, it's, it's the only way that we end up with new treatments that don't exist, and it's the only way that we end up 
trying to better identify optimizing treatments for, for patients as well. So Dr. Strauss had spoken in the beginning about how radiation really played a striking role in the treatment of Hodgkin's in the beginning, and more recently it has kind of taken a backseat to chemotherapy, though it's still an important tool we use as needed. We wouldn't be able to make those adjustments in the treatments for people and, and minimize toxicity and side effect while curing as many people as possible without clinical trials that show us that those things are safe and feasible to do. And it also tells us a little bit, uh, trials also teach us a lot about safety as far as combining treatments that we know work um, and seeing what happens when we put them together. Do they work better? Do people end up with side effects that make that combination uh, exciting or dangerous? Um, and so a clinical trial is really a controlled way for us to test what we would call a hypothesis or a new idea um, in trying to find new and better ways to do things for our patients. Oh, excellent. So well said. And, and, and really, it is why actually hospital lymphoma particularly is where it is today as opposed to where it was so many, many years ago. It's really amazing how it's that the trials have transformed the treatment of uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma tremendously. So thank you. It's very important. Um, and so another question um, from one of our online participants. Um, so um, for David, um, I am considering getting radiation therapy after chemo. What are the risks or of having side effects if I do so? Is it worth the risk of side effects? Well, that's very hard to answer as a general question. I mean, there are <clears throat> standard approaches that uh, use a combination of chemotherapy and radiation therapy, and there are pros and cons to that approach. And I think um, that I, it's hard for me to generalize. I think that you you have to have a very serious discussion with your medical oncologist to really talk about the risks and benefits of different approaches. But, I mean, I, it's hard for me to make a general uh, comment on that. Excellent point. So we really are encouraging. And actually, for many of you on the call who are asking questions, um, you'll see your question as a kind of role play, take these back to your treating healthcare team. So this is one of those questions that is really best for, it's a good question. So we're validating it's a really good question that you've asked, but we want you to take it back to your healthcare team. And Tom, do you want to add anything to that as well, or basically? It's a very complicated question. I think <laughs> one of the other things we really haven't talked much about, but kind of alluded to, are PET scans. And PET scans have actually helped us tremendously in this particular area. And there continues to be evolving information, uh, predominantly and uh, especially out of the uh, European uh, groups, uh, the German Hodgkin Lymphoma Study Group, which are demonstrating that even in the presence of large mediastinal masses, which we used to routinely recommend uh, uh, radiation therapy, that if patients are PEP negative, then that's not, uh, radiation therapy may not be necessary. There was just uh, another new paper yesterday in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, which is one of the premier research journals in cancer, uh, uh, alluding to this issue. Um, and so this particular question, as David stated, is a real hard question, and it comes down to understanding exactly what the scans show uh, it comes down to exactly if it's the initial presentation, how one was treated, especially in that group where he talked about the stage one, two, but bulky or with other risk factors such as B symptoms or elevated set rates. Uh, so all of those things need to be weighed in. Thank you very much. Thank you. That really um, is very helpful um, um, additional information. Uh, thank you. And, um, so a question for Allison, um, Ashley. Um, I've been postponing getting a second opinion because of the pandemic. I'd like to schedule video meetings for doctors. How would you suggest I look for doctors who do video conferences? That's a great question. Um, I think many of the academic centers, at least, are offering that 
as an option, telemedicine in some way, shape, or form. Um, in fact, tomorrow, two of the four new patients I have are video visits for two people who live out of the state that I am in. Um, I think most, you could probably call anywhere and ask if they're offering it and what that looks like and what's required on your end from both a technology perspective as well as, you know, would they expect an in-person visit or anything done ahead of time to facilitate you getting the opinion you're looking for. There are definitely things that I've been asked to see via video that I've not felt comfortable seeing via video after reviewing records, but I think it's an okay place to start for the most part, and if you can't get to a place where input may, may differ, I, I think most places have that capability at, this, at that point. That's really been probably the best thing that's come out of the experience of the pandemic this year is making sure that those platforms are in place for people who need them. Excellent. And does anyone else like to add anything to that? Uh, just add that I, I found these actually to require a significant amount of time if done well because we go through a spirit. That I think you have to go through the records before you get on a, visit, a video consultation as opposed to coming into a patient's room with the records in front of you and working through scans and working through uh, what happened. Uh, it, so it's a, it's a different experience on both sides, not only for the patient, but also the physician. I, I would just uh, just very briefly add, I think that nothing replaces uh, direct face-to-face -face visits, and I've been trained, I, I was surprised at how much we could get done by telemedicine being very skeptical and being old school, trained to do a physical exam, find heart murmurs, which have nothing to do really with what they're seeing before, but I found, we found that, uh, that we can get pretty much what patients need in a second opinion done very often by telemedicine. I mean, it is not the same as seeing somebody face-to-face -face and in person and examining them, but we can really get done a lot of what people need by that uh, approach. Excellent. This is really, I think, so important for people to hear because, indeed, um, this is something that is, um, you know, um, you know, it's, it's so important actually that this uh, that, that this is a, a, the issue is it's, it, we're using this now during the pandemic, and it's and it has been for many people uh, a lifeline to be able to communicate with their healthcare team in this way safely, um, and. Um, well, I actually, this has been, we could go on all afternoon, no, there's any more questions in queue, but I want to thank our speakers, you've really been phenomenal, such a wonderful uh, group of speakers, also such a wonderful um, group of participants today with such really wonderful questions. Um, and, um, you know, we asked all of you to, um, you know, to, uh, to think of what you've heard today and, and really take that information back to your treating healthcare team, you know, and, and ask those questions of them, too, um, and we hope that, and for those of you who are asking questions about how do you set up these appointments and things like that, I hope you have some guides to do that as well. I do want to remind all of you this is an hour workshop, and so in keeping with that one-hour program, um, I do want to remind all of you that you can access, of course, many uh, you can, of course, go back to treating healthcare team. We definitely recommend that. We do not want to in any way um, uh, take the place of your treating healthcare team. That's one thing I want to make very clear. And your healthcare team consists of many different disciplines. And so, whatever the issues are that you're struggling with, of course, bring them to your healthcare team. Um, we also, of course, um, uh, if you're if you're having any financial or practical or issues that you'd like to get some help with or other services, you certainly can contact Cancer Care. It's a free service. You can call one of our social workers and they can be of help to you as well. Um, and uh, most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I really don't want anyone to feel that you're alone. We know that you do feel alone sometimes, and particularly in this world right now of social distancing and, you know, and, uh, you know, and not really being able to get together with people as you might have in the past. Um, that, um, you know, so it's normal, it is normal to feel alone at times. But we also want you to know that you're part of a very large community of 
support. And we actually will be sending you a lot of, when you get the evaluation from us, you'll be getting a lot of those resources that you can access. Um, some of them have call centers that are on all 20 hours a day. Some of them are only during business hours. They're all offering different services, and you can access them. They're, all the services we provide you, all the resources are, are free, and that's important to know. Your healthcare team also is available, and they, if you often, issues and problems come up evenings and weekends, always check with your healthcare team, you know, how do you call them if you need to speak to someone evening or weekends, and they will identify for you what you should do and when, what you need to do. That's really important to have that information as well. I actually very much want to thank all of you for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.